Welcome to episode 11 of Sustainable Futures, Designing Green Buildings and Communities. My name is Stephen Peck and I am your host and the founder of Green Roofs for Healthy Cities, a nonprofit industry association working to develop the green roof and wall industry across North America. Today, we're talking about water and plants and sustainable communities and are honored to be speaking with Dr. Alyssa Starry, Assistant Professor of Urban Ecology at Portland State University. Dr. Starry is an expert on green roofs and stormwater management with a focus on the interaction between plants and waters. Professor Starry received her PhD from the University of Maryland in College Park, where she utilized wireless sensor technology to study the ecophysiology of succulent plants typically found on green roofs in the Lee Cox lab. Prior to this, she was an NSF IGERT trainee at the University of Maryland in Baltimore County. She has held positions with the state of Philadelphia Department of Environmental Protection and the Urban Ecology Institute in Boston. She holds a master's degree in stream ecology from Virginia Polytechnic and State University, as well as a BA and master's in environmental studies from the American University in Washington, D.C. Dr. Starry has recently been appointed to the Board of Directors of Green Roofs for Healthy Cities, and she's currently exploring funding opportunities for the regional centers of excellence, which are located in different cities across North America, to collaborate on a plant database for green roof projects in different climates. Alyssa, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a fan of this series. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, we're uh, we're delighted to have you and uh, give you an opportunity to share some of your knowledge and expertise. But before we get into that, can you tell me a little bit about how you got into this whole plant, stormwater, green infrastructure realm? Yes. So um, I'm a I'm a small town kid from Enola, Pennsylvania, and I spent a lot of time gardening with my dad. And when I went off to college, I um, was very shocked by the urban environment. And I, to be quite honest, I wanted to run back to the um, to the forested landscape uh, as fast as I could. Uh, but over time, I kind of grew to love the community and the culture of urban environments. And I started to think about how I could um, combine my experience um, in the rural landscape with my passion for urban life. And um, and then I went and I, I was thinking about um, water questions and how plants use water. And then I went and studied abroad in Germany and I made a visit to my first green roof. And I was just really fascinated by these systems and really started to see those as places that I could um, think about questions about how plants worked and about nature, but also kind of do that in the context of the urban environment. Wow, that that's that's a great uh, origin story, if you will, trying to bring some of the best elements of the country into the city and responding yeah. to, I guess, the grayness or lack of biophilia in the city is what sort of originally sparked this journey that you're on. Is that what drives you? What is it driving your, your work? What gets you up every day? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's um, it's right. It's I th I think it's incorrect to sort of paint urban areas as these blighted spaces. That's how I was seeing them in my early twenties when I first went away to college. But then what I learned is that there's actually a lot of life in cities, and I'd have to say that's what gets me up every day is you know getting out there in the urban environment and and really seeing the life there, like noticing the swallows that are building nests in the downspout, you know, all these stories about urban wildlife that we didn't really know that was there and, and really kind of um, having these stories and getting to share these stories with my students. Yeah, there's a lot more out there in terms of nature in cities and often meets the eye. Now, cities are under a lot of stress these days. You know, we have, um, they're getting hotter. We have the urban heat island challenge, especially in poor neighborhoods and in, in cities. Um, we have intense um, st uh, stormwater, rainfall events. We have social justice issues. There's a lot of pressure on cities these days and a real need to, to get uh, more on a sustainable path. 
Um, how is it that plants in particular can help us deal with climate change to mitigate uh, the the impacts of climate change in, in cities? Well, you know, I the the first thing that comes to mind, there's a lot of like really direct ways that plants are involved in mitigating climate change, right? So we all know that plants are taking up carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which is sort of the, the increased concentration of which is causing a lot of these problems that you're talking about, right? So we can rely on plants to some extent to um, mitigate some of that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Um, there's some new research from Berkeley that suggests that because carbon dioxide is elevated in the atmosphere, plants are even increasing their rates of photosynthesis. Um, I think we can't totally, you know, just, you know, close the book and say, okay, plants are going to take care of this for us. Um, but they are helping to some extent um, directly. And then there's also a lot of indirect ways that plants are um, mitigating climate change by cooling. So because plants can cool the environment, then we don't need to use fossil fuels to do to create that same um, cooling function. I will say, um, I will also go off script a little bit and talk about, you know, thinking about the answer to the last question. Uh, another way that plants can really help us in, in the face of all of these changes that you're talking about with respect to climate change is in addressing climate grief. There's a lot of talk in ecological circles these days about just the overwhelming um, feelings that people are having about all those situations that you just listed. I mean, in, in sitting here and listening to you list all of those changes that are happening, my blood pressure went up a little bit. I don't know if you could tell, but I just, you know, and we do have evidence that plants, just being around plants can help people with some of those feelings that they're having about climate change too. Like just getting to take a walk out in an urban park and that, you know, that really helps people who are thinking about these questions every day. There are also people out there who are not thinking about climate change every day and interacting with plants in the urban environment in a in an intentional way can also help those people uh, kind of understand what we're up against in terms of climate change. So we need access to plants in our cities, I think you're saying, because of the health benefits that they bring both mental yeah. and physical yes. and in and, and part dealing with the stresses of climate change itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's uh there's definitely a, a lot of literature, scientific literature that supports that, uh, that contention. Yeah. Um, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with Dr. Alyssa Starry to talk a little bit more about plants and climate change and sustainable cities. Don't go away. In 2023, Green Roots for Healthy Cities is taking our smaller scale Greater Green Conference on the road, featuring a strong focus on local design and policy considerations and addressing regional priorities through practical solutions. Next stops on our tour will be in New York City on October 23rd and Vancouver on November 3rd. Join local designers, policymakers, and innovators for expert presentations, tours, networking, and a trade show, as well as the opportunity to take the brand new, fully hands-on green roof installation and maintenance professional training course. Both events are approved for seven continuing education credits and registrations already open. In New York, join designers and policymakers to explore the new regulatory landscapes of Local Laws 92 and 94, as well as the ongoing initiatives by the DEP to enhance green infrastructure uptake across the five boroughs. In Vancouver, learn from experts and researchers about the criticality of the Cascadia region ecosystems, how to protect its watersheds and enhance its biodiversity through investments and regulation into natural infrastructure systems. Special thanks to our sponsors and partners for their support of this event. For more information, visit us at greatergreenconference.org, and we hope to see you there. Welcome back. Uh, with me today is Alyssa Starry, and we're talking about plants and water and sustainable communities. Uh, Alyssa, you were just mentioning that there are health benefits associated with having um, access to gardens, parks, green roofs, green space in cities. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, that area of research is really taking off in urban ecology. So we have a paper out in Frontiers looking at um, how 
Um, greeners can help in um, in a hospital setting, um, but really the leader in that work is Naomi Sachs, a researcher at the University of Maryland, and she's done a lot of how we can use plants in a in a healing context and in a medical context. She runs a, a group called the Therapeutic Landscapes Network, and she has a book along this with a similar title out. Um, but I think there's also a lot of work showing now how. Um, you know, the whole forest bathing movement is all about how people can really benefit, like you said, mentally and physically from just, you know, being out close to plants in nature. Yeah, I certainly know I, you know, need my regular uh, plant fix uh, mm-hmm. on a regular basis to, uh, to keep the blood pressure lower than it might otherwise be. And in fact, plants do lower our blood pressure, interestingly enough. That's a, yeah. that's a, that's a, um, a fact. And the other, another um, really interesting study that I think about a lot is by um, Catherine Williams and her group in in Australia, including uh, Claire Farrell. They did a study that showed that just even spending time out on in nature, or I'm not sure if the students were spending time out in nature, or if they were looking at pictures uh, of urban nature, and in particular, they're looking at pictures of urban green roofs, um, they were able to include improve their test scores in that context and compared to just looking out on an urban hardscape. Well, that's really uh, well, really interesting. Yeah. Um, so not only do plants help us with some of the physical ramifications of climate change in terms of helping to cool off cities and manage stormwater, they're also there for us on a mental uh, and yeah. health well-being front as yeah. well. Yeah. And I think we've discounted this a lot in the past, but I think we're going to see a lot more need for um, that kind of support moving forward. So how does one, let's get into the weeds, so to speak, a little bit. Yeah. How does one address the, the, what are the challenges to using plants more effectively for those for these purposes in cities? Yeah. So the two things that come to mind when I think about um I guess the overarching theme for me when I think about using plants to address climate change is that we're asking a lot of these plants, right? So we need to be careful. We need to manage these plants correctly and we need to choose them wisely. Um, So there's some research coming out now that shows that um, not all plants are great for addressing climate change. Some plants, there's there's a moss in particular that emits isoprene. And isoprene combines with ozone in the environment to create um, uh, a chemical in the atmosphere that not only irritates our lungs, but also contributes to climate change. So plants and the volatile chemicals that they emit, certain species can can actually contribute to climate change. So we do not wanna proliferate those plants in the environment um, if we're trying to address climate change. And another um, big example of this in terms of plant selection to address climate change is the Million Trees Project. So a lot of mayors of a lot of cities recognize that plants are good for mitigating climate change. So they said, we're going to plant a million trees in our cities. And um, that, for a lot of horticulturalists, that was kind of like a huge um, stress response. (laughs) Because they're like, we have to grow these million trees. Which trees are we going to select? Where are they going to go? We've got to find places for all these trees. Um, you know, the, the intent there is good, but we need to pick the right trees. Um, a case in point is, I think they had a million trees mandate in LA. And Diane Pataki, a researcher there, was like, hold on. Um, we don't have any water to, in LA for all these trees. So you're gonna need to convince people to install the most drought tolerant species. And these are the ones that kind of store water in their trunks and they kind of, they don't look like oak trees, you know, that, you know, the standard trees that people expect. So um, we we just have to be careful. I I think plants are gonna really help uh, mitigate climate change, but we have to be careful. We can't ask too much of them. In fact, some people talk about it as plants just kind of like staving off the doom, right? So they can they can help us keep up with the increasing emissions, but they're not going to do it on their own. And, you know, plants aren't, you know, obviously, you know, all of them aren't just benevolent. You know, some plants are, are problematic. 
And, oh, yeah. uh, and, and, you know, we have lots of examples. It's easy to say, oh, yeah, we're going to do a million trees or two million trees. But what kind of trees is obviously very important. What the trees need. Where are the trees going to go? Uh, what is the diversity, nat, natural, you know, native trees versus non-native? It's a lot more complicated than it often seems. Oh, yeah. And traditionally, we've only planted male trees because female trees make fruit and that fruit is messy. Like the gink- I mean, we all know the ginkgo fruit is really stinky um, and some some tree fruit is very messy. But you got to think about the pollen that all those male trees are making. That's supposedly what everyone is allergic to. I mean, there's some questions about that too, but um, yeah. Um, How can plants help us adapt to a changing climate in cities? Like, let's say we figure out, you know, how to plant um, a million trees, or often I know people talk about 40% coverage, 40% of the land area, for example, be, be covered in urban forest. That's a number that's kicked around a lot. If we um, figure that out, what happens? Yeah, that um, the the forty percent comes from a paper out of Seattle. Um, I think it's Derek Williams from Seattle who's done that work. Um, yeah, they they have shown repeatedly that um, once you get below forty percent vegetation in a watershed, you start seeing um, consequences in the stormwater runoff. So you start to see more flooding and things just kind of start to unravel. Um, but so it's storm water. So the 40% comes from a storm water benefit related perspective. That's the work that I'm aware of. There may be some other, you know, um, focus, there may be some other papers that show mm-hmm. different consequences for a decline in vegetative cover. But, you know, as, as, as critical as I am about, uh, putting a lot of our faith in plants, you know, we have to acknowledge that they provide a lot of evaporative cooling in our cities. And um, there's a colleague of mine here at Portland State, Vivek Chandez, has been really looking at this because he recognizes that urban heat is extremely dangerous to our vulnerable populations in cities. We we have deaths every year in Portland because of the urban heat island. And so what he's been doing is... Uh, he, with along with colleagues is he's been putting a temperature sensor on his car and he's been driving around and making these urban heat maps, these like fine scale urban heat maps at, in a bunch of cities all over the nation. He's very sought after for doing this. And he's been able to show that, you know, without a doubt in areas where there's denser vegetation, we see localized cooling. And that's very important for human health, but it's also very important for energy conservation, right? So that the trees are definitely um, helping us conserve energy through not only just evaporative cooling, but um, also from shading. And, And so that's one way that plants are helping us be more resilient in the face of climate change. But in addition to that, of course, you know, they provide the green infrastructure that we need to deal with stormwater challenges. So as you were mentioning, once cities have fewer, have less than 40% vegetative coverage, we start to see changes in stormwater runoff. We start to see flashier urban hydrographs. So what that means is um, when it starts to rain, the, the water that hits the surface of your city begins to run off more like an avalanche and less like a small brook, you know, less like a small trickle, you get this avalanche of water hitting your urban streams, and that can result in drastic flooding that can, you know, carry people away that can cause a a lot of infrastructure damage. And one way to address this stormwater um, challenge is through um, gray infrastructure. You know, we can build larger pipes, we can build more culverts, we can repair bridges. But those um, have their own challenges. And we have um, plants can really help us through uh, by creating green infrastructure, um, which has a bunch of other benefits, co-benefits for our urban biodiversity, as we were talking for our human health, um, you know, and, and for other ways of mitigating climate change. Yeah, it seems to be like we're moving a little bit more towards the notion of capturing and using stormwater to support plants and cities rather than capturing stormwater and getting it away from buildings yeah. and communities as fast as possible. Like the thinking is starting to come around a little bit on that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also 
way more costly to to implement some of these larger, you know, plastic laden um, cement engineered projects. Interesting. Um, do all plants? I mean, we we're just mentioning that all trees are not created equal. Do all plants have the ability to cool their environments, or are some plants more effective at this than others? And what makes up the difference? Yeah, so we've been talking about evaporative cooling, but we haven't really gotten into how that works for plants. So, you know, the plants have small holes in their leaves called stomates. And as water leaves the plant and goes into the atmosphere, that's um, transpiration. Uh, it it um, That process takes heat away from the environment. And you're also probably familiar with evaporation, right? That's when heat from the environment um, is used to heat water in the soil and then the the change of water from water form in the soil into gas in the atmosphere also takes energy out of the atmosphere and that's how the cooling is created and so it can be either through evaporation transpiration or to combined we call it evapotranspiration so moving water from a liquid form in plants or soils or on the surface of various structures into a gaseous form um, uses more energy up and cools our cities. Correct. Yeah. And so what plants, you know, would do we are should we be focusing on to help us cool our cities? Are they I would think that, you know, there's a big difference between, for example, cacti you know, and tropical plants when it comes to evapotranspiration. Right. Or ET. Sometimes they call it ET. Yeah. So the question is, what happens when the water isn't available to the plants? Right. What are they going to do? And plants have different strategies for dealing with drought. And so um, a lot of the plants that you know, people plant in their gardens are what we call in ecology the C3 plants. So they do the kind of textbook photosynthesis that we're all, that we talked about earlier, that uses carbon dioxide and um, and creates oxygen. And that process um, also, and in order to run that process, the plants have to keep those stomates and their leaves open to take up the CO2. As they have those stomates open though, they're also making themselves vulnerable to water loss. You know, um, that's great because that creates a lot of cooling, but that, um, but through that process, the plant is, using its water. That's fine if there's lots of water available, but in other environments where there's not a lot of water available, plants have developed different strategies. So, um, the, and all of these strategies involve keeping those stomates closed and getting the carbon dioxide somehow, some other way, right? So um, cam plants, which I have studied a lot, have developed a way to keep their stomates closed during the day. Um, so what they do is they open their stomates at night, they take up a lot of carbon dioxide, and they store it in the form of malic acid. And then during the day, they can um, keep their stomates closed, and they can convert that malic acid back into a, a usable form like carbon dioxide, and they can run their photosynthesis without having to open their stomates at all. So that's crassolucian acid metabolism. So these cam plants yeah. open their storm stomates to suck in uh, carbon dioxide at night because they're going to lose less water that way. Yes, they're not getting the they're not getting the, um, the the radiation from the sun, which would otherwise dry them out faster. Is Correct. that right? Yes, yes. Thank you for adding that detail. And, and it, do we do that? Is that why we use them on green roof? roof systems? Uh, what's the connection yeah. there? That makes these plants very drought tolerant and that, you know, and some green roof environments are super exposed. So that makes them very um, uh, successful for some green roof installations. In addition, a lot of these uh, cam plants are very succulent, so they can store a lot of water in their leaves as well. And again, makes them very drought tolerant. So for a really hot exposed roof with no irrigation, succulent camp plants can be advantageous if you know if you're just going for wanting the plants to survive um i should add though that uh there is most of the plants that are cam are what we call facultative cam 
So they're very amazing because if, if water becomes suddenly readily available, they can retool and they can switch out of can and they can act like a C3 plant. Because that's more efficient at um, processing CO2 into oxygen through photosynthesis. Correct. Yeah. So um, I, I called CAM photos when I was defending my dissertation, I called CAM photosynthesis a weight loss plan for plants, right? Because they're using a lot of energy and they're not getting, they're not making a lot of energy um, in, in CAM metabolism. It's a very, it's much slower. Um, that's why succulent plants are slow, slower growing because they have to take all of the, you know, they don't just have the carbon dioxide readily available to go and make sugars, right? They have to first convert, they have to use sugar to take the carbon dioxide and turn it into malic acid. And then they have to use their energy stores, their sugars again, to take that malic acid and put it back in the carbon dioxide so that they can carry out photosynthesis. So it's a very energy intensive process for the plant. And so if they can switch over to C3, they can make a, a lot more sugar that way um, if water is readily available. So how does this relate to our understanding of what type of plants to have in our cities, like yeah. dealing with well, climate change? Yeah, I'll add that there is one more type of photosynthesis. I touched upon it briefly before, but the C4 photosynthesis is another way that plants can um, store water, you know, can be drought tolerant um, and still photosynthesize without open their, opening their stomates. Um, so in C4 plants like grasses, they, um, they have cells that um, they kind of do the photosynthesis in a way that physically separates where the photosynthesis is happening and where the water loss is happening. So they kind of guard that process spatially. So CAM photosynthesis um, separates the water use from the um, from the carbon use temporally, and C4 photosynthesis separates the water use from the carbon use spatially. So we have these three different ways of using carbon um, that differentially um, create a water demand for the plant. And so, um, in terms of choosing the plants that are that best suit the need um, it, or that would best mitigate for climate change, we need to think about our climate, the existing climate, and how to maximize carbon uptake um, and while also conserving water. And I think that's that's a big research question right now. I have an experiment going on right now on on campus just across the um, you know, just across the street where we're kind of studying like how um, how do how does a succulent sedum album compare in terms of um, carbon carbon sequestration and water runoff um, or you know and, and irrigation demand to a C4 grass. So so your so jury's kind of still out on that. We I think we need more information. Mm -hmm. So your sort of perspective on this seems to be uh, water is the critical input for plants in an urban area and making sure that there's a, a sufficient understanding of the water needs and their ability to respond to drought. Um, yeah. Is that because of the your some sort of reckon, recognition on your part uh, that the climate's very increasingly variable and we don't know? You know, you know, we get a hundred year storm, 300 year storms in 15 years in some places. And then, you know, we've had these heat domes and I mean, the climate is definitely becoming more chaotic. Yes. Is that why you're sort of thinking about the water as being the critical design factor for plant selection? I agree hundred percent. For me, water is the most critical. And if you're like, let's take a step back. And if you're, let's say you're just going to design a roof for um, carbon uptake, you know, to mitigate climate change, you are going to have to take some risks, right? So um, you know that C3 plants are going to store a lot of carbon, and you think that you have enough water to make it you know, through the through the summer. You get one drought, 
I, I've been in this situation with some of my colleagues and should we irrigate? Should we not irrigate? I don't know what to do. You decide not to irrigate. You, a lot of those plants can die. Right. And so, and then those dead plants are not taking up any carbon for you. Yeah. So yeah. carbon uptake in plants requires a steady flow of water um, and irrigation uh, in, yeah. when there are climates that have drought periods of drought historically or in the future. Is I guess yeah. what you're saying, right? Yeah, and there's yeah. and then there's this question of um, is it even so? So maybe I'm going to hedge my bets and I'm going to plant a succulent green roof, and I might have to weed it because these slow-growing succulents might not compete with some of the faster-growing weedy species. Um, should I irrigate it? Should I irrigate it anyway? Because the um, the drought-tolerant cam succulents can survive. But are they um, you, are they taking up a lot of carbon? If I irrigate them, if I keep them uh, a low level of irrigation all summer, I might uh, keep some of those facultative species in their C3 mode, right? And so when the plants, if they can stay in C3 mode, then they're using more carbon and they're healthier. And then when it rains in the spring, when we finally do get the rain, those plants are tooled up and they're ready to go and they're ready to absorb all the water. Um, if if um, I kept them in cam, they're kind of sleeping. They're kind of in sleeper mode, and so then it then I get my rain, and the plants are like, hold on a second, I got to switch over to C three photosynthesis. I'll be right with you. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Some people are thinking you should just have like a low level of irrigation. I'm really sad that my colleague Sam Hartzell isn't here today. I'm working on that experiment that I mentioned with her, where we're comparing the succulents to the grass species. She is an expert plant modeler from Princeton, and um, we, she's going to be working on the engineering side of that project, and she's going to be helping us um, run some scenarios, right? So for a range of climate conditions, for a range of plant species, for different times of year in CAM or C3 or C4, what can we expect from these species in terms of growth? What can we expect from these species in terms of stormwater management? Mm. Very interesting. I mean, uh, it, when you're when you're talking about that stuff, it makes me think: um, are, are any of the owners of green roofs even thinking about like maximizing carbon sequestration through their plants? <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm imagining that's probably not top of mind for a lot of green roof <laughs> owners. Um, but it's an interesting academic uh, question um, because there could be a lot of other reasons to irrigate a, a green roof. Uh, other than you know maximizing the their carbon uh, sequestration capability of plants like human use and enjoyment or biodiversity just to being yeah. just being too um the other thing that comes up all the time is about irrigation is the the whole idea of uh, like irrigation don't waste the water and one of the things that we've uh, talked about uh, as an industry is that you know when you use water if you can capture storm water and reuse it, uh, when there's a period of drought, that's a, a very good strategy because it saves potable water. But even the use of potable water um, can help uh, cool the building down yes. and the surrounding area. If you want to reduce the urban heat island effect, you know, you're going to need evapotranspiration from your roof, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Which means you need to have water if you're going to have evapotranspiration. And if you cool the city down, you what do you do? You save energy. Yes. So there's water use to save energy. So there's these interesting feedback loops around water and energy and plants and buildings. Yeah. And of course, if plants are cranking and they're photosynthesizing and they're using a lot of water, like if they're in C3 and they're photosynthesizing, they're healthier, they're out-competing weed species, and they are cooling, right? And David Saylor has that um, energy savings calculator paper that people can go out and get. I'll, I'll provide a link to that. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of debate on how uh, roofs can cool buildings uh, because, you know, it's just on the, on the, it's just like putting a sponge on your head, right? So there's all this, the other surface area of the building that of course we're going to cover in green walls, but um, uh, you know, insulation can also help, cool buildings and reduce energy costs. I do think though that uh, green spaces, Vivek Chandis has shown, like green spaces definitely cool the urban environment. The jury is still out in my opinion about how uh, 
greening cools the interior of buildings. That's like a whole different ball game. Indeed. Um, yeah. With that, we'll be right back with uh, Dr. Alyssa Starry as we delve into some of the nuts and bolts and trade-offs in terms of plants and water and buildings and cooling and carbon sequestration. Stay with us. The Living Architecture Academy is an online learning platform dedicated to bringing you the best training courses, conference recordings, and more on green infrastructure, low-impact development, and sustainable design practices. To celebrate the launch of the Fall Water Edition of the Living Architecture Monitor, we're discounting all of our water management and green infrastructure offerings by 20% on the Living Architecture Academy from now to November 1st. Courses such as Net Zero Water for Buildings and Sites, Green Infrastructure for Climate Adaptation, as well as recordings of all of our water management and blue-green technology virtual symposia. All courses on the Academy are offered on demand, do not expire, and are approved for AIA, ASLA, and GRP Continuing Education, so you can learn at your own pace, on your own schedule, and earn CEUs. Visit livingarchitectureacademy.com to take advantage of this special promotion before it's over. Welcome back. I'm here with Alyssa Starry, who is discussing the different types of photosynthesis and different types of plants and how it relates to water use and sustainability and how we can mitigate some of the challenges we face from climate change, like intense rainfall and heat um, using plants. So we're going to get right back into it. Uh, uh, for green roofs, which you study quite closely, Alyssa, what are the best plants for mitigating climate change and cooling the surrounding environment? What, what should we be going for? That's the million dollar question, right? I think that's, that's where the research is at. You know, it's going to depend on your climate. It's going to depend on the water availability. Um, as I mentioned, we have some experiments now kind of comparing grass and succulents under different irrigation regimes uh, to kind of, to try and learn, you know, how we can get, you know, we want a good looking roof, but we want one that is going to sequester a lot of carbon and, and contribute to a lot of cooling and how can we maximize these things? So we're, we're uh, collecting real-time data and we're also generating a lot of computer models to try and figure that out. And the key uh, uh, aspect of this research is whether or not we're going to irrigate and what that irrigation looks like. Mm -hmm. So that's another really exciting um aspect of urban greening right now is this this tension between having plants and wanting them to be drought tolerant and this question of whether or not like oh hey can we irrigate them if we have you know a cistern water available and things like that and then if we are irrigating what does that irrigation schedule look like right so we have a lot of timed irrigation systems out there you know you set it and forget it and um those are better than no um schedule, you know, because, uh, you know, we have, we do have people out there irrigating during rainstorms still. Uh, but, you know, it kind of spans the gamut from that to there's some really high tech approaches to irrigating these days. There's model based systems, right? So there's, um, there's like basically irrigation brains that kind of take into account environmental conditions and sort of predict how much water is available to the plants. And then they send out just like a micro irrigation pulse to the plants just to keep them going. Just kind of keep them in C3 to keep them cooling, to keep them sequestering the carbon and doing their thing. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited about a lot of the new potentials. You know, we have farmers kind of like uh, setting their irrigations from their phones now. Um, I'm not as familiar with all the different strategies that people use to supply the water. I know Stephen, you might weigh in about what they have in the um, in the in the green roof manual in terms of whether people go with drip or overhead or how people are irrigating right now. But I think there could be some ways that we can creatively use irrigation to um, to maximize the benefits that plants provide. Yeah, I think that's a really important point um, because, you know, there are different irrigation strategies for different types of green roofs 
you know, typically with the intensive green roofs, which involve small trees and shrubs and are usually um, provide amenity space to the building occupants. You know, we have often have um, spray irrigation systems uh, that are used. Um, and there are, you're right, uh, there are a lot of technologies. There's moisture sensors and mm-hmm. and there are sensors that are connected to the, the weather forecast. I mean, there there's a lot of technologies that are um, available now to help us manage irrigation water way more efficiently than we have in the past, which has been a, an ongoing criticism of the irrigation industry in general, that there's a lot of water wastage mm-hmm. uh, associated with irrigating lawns during a rainstorm as you say for example um what kind of um um relationship is there between water use on a on a building on a green roof and energy use perhaps you can unpack that a little bit for us how do those two things relate yeah so um some we uh I was involved in a study with David Saylor here in Portland where we were looking at uh, whether or not green roofs can cool a building. And uh, when we looked at the balance of the whole year, we found out, you know, our data showed not a big amount of cooling. But then we had to step back and and look at it and say, like, wait a second, Uh, there's not going to be any cooling if there's no water. Right. So in the in the hottest summer months when we were not irrigating, we did not have cooling. But when we looked closely at the times when we were irrigating or where we had a little bit of rain and it was still warm, we saw a lot of evaporative cooling from the green roofs. So you need water for cooling. You need water to keep the plants happy. And um, when the plants are happy and you're getting the cooling, you're um, re- you're more resilient to climate change. Another piece of this that just kind of came to mind, you know, we haven't talked a lot about all the other benefits of you know healthy plants and you know keeping the plant plants happy through irrigation um and we we probably won't discuss all of them but since the the theme is climate change i think i should still mention the biodiversity benefits right because a lot of the urban wildlife and you know insects and and even urban plants are going to be vulnerable to these climate shifts and so by um, caring for our urban green spaces and maintaining them, we are creating refuges for these species that are getting displaced because of climate change. So um, there is that potential. That's really something to say that uh, cities are refuges for <laughs> species uh, <laughs> trying to survive the, the problems associated with uh, of adapting to climate change. But because I... I <laughs> 15 years ago, I couldn't get anybody to do any research on biodiversity and green roofs at all because cities and biodiversity were never spoken in the same yeah. sentence. Uh, but that things have changed a lot since then, uh, which yeah. is good to see. Um, and what about uh, biodiversity is obviously very important and insects need moisture. And there's some talk about having moisture available on biodiverse green roofs all the time for birds and insects. Like a like a fountain or some sort of a bubbler or some sort of structure that has water available because it's so, so important. Um, I know you've done a lot of work also on um, air quality. Perhaps you could mm-hmm. speak briefly to the something we haven't spoken about, but plants in cities and air quality. Maybe you could give us a quick uh, overview about that dynamic. Hmm, that's a yeah, that's a good question. Um, so our our work on air quality was uh, not unrelated to cooling, right? So one thing to consider is that in these large buildings, the way the way large buildings are cooled is through HVAC, right? And we all learned a lot about HVAC through COVID, so I'm not gonna really go into that, but the intake for the HVAC, so the air that comes into your building is comes generally from the roof. And so since I'm since I study green roofs, I was really interested in the quality of that air as it passes over the green roof and into the building. Now, of course, all of these HVAC HVAC systems have filters, right? So the filters kind of take care of all the pollen and all the plant material that kind of comes through. But once that is collected in the filter, what is the, you know, what is the effect of the green roof on the air? And so, you know, we just did a pilot study. We've got some preliminary data we did see that the biodiversity on the HVAC filters was different 
compared to a different um, for filters from a green roof compared to a white roof. Um, and we had mixed results, but it's possible that that collection of material on the HVAC filter can actually um, uh, increase ozone deposition. And you want that. You do not want ozone coming into your building because ozone reacts with other chemicals in the atmosphere to pr produce things like formaldehyde and other things that make you sick. So, um, yeah, so that's that's really in the weeds, but that's what I've been thinking about in terms of um, plants and air quality. Um, the other thing, as I mentioned earlier, is that some urban plants contribute negatively to air quality by producing isoprene. And we did do some tests on some of the most common green roof plants. And so it has an Italian group um, led by Baraldi. Um, and we all found that uh, the, the contribution of a lot of green roof plants to um, urban air pollution is very low. So I got some good news for you there on, on that topic. Is there a positive contribution though as well? Uh, yes, yeah. And then the HVAC? I did work, now this is very preliminary working with an undergrad. We did um, ask some questions around uh, rates of deposition onto plant leaf surfaces. Mm -hmm. And we are seeing um, that the plants, you know, they're, they're collecting just, you know, pollution from the air, from the urban environment, right? And they, from my research, it seems like the plants are collecting that dust at the same rate as like a white roof surface. But the thing about plant leaf surfaces is that when you, know, when you look at a plant and you look at a tree, when you look at a succulent plant, it's um, not a flat surface, right? There's a lot of like little nooks and crannies and there's like a high level of surface area of plant um, per square meter compared to just a white roof per square meter. And so by creating that extra surface area for part particles to deposit onto, I think that there's a great potential for um, plants in the urban environment to, um, to collect dust from the atmosphere. And you know, we found that a lot of that, that dust does contain a lot of heavy metals you know, from urban combustion. So I'm pretty optimistic about that. Well, that's exciting. That's really yeah. exciting. Yeah. Um, perhaps uh, you could share with us a little bit of information about upcoming research and design projects uh, that you're engaged in. I think you touched on a, a little bit, but maybe you could tell us a little bit more about what you're up to. Yeah. When we were talking about cities as being, you know, potential climate refugia or, you know, uh, places where we can do some creative things to help wildlife in the urban environment. I'm really thinking about Kyle Ruskowski from the University of Colorado at Boulder. He's got some great research on plant phenology, urban plant phenology. Phenology is a very hot topic in urban ecology right now. It's looking at how the extra heat in urban environments is changing the life cycle of our wildlife and, and our plants. Right. So, as you know, you've heard about in, in the U.S., we have this thing called bud burst where we kind of look at what time of year are the flowers opening. And for some species, the flowers are opening way too soon, you know, way much sooner than the insects, you know, potentially than the insects that are going to pollinate those flowers. And we have, there's a lot of unknowns about that. And Kyle's research on green roofs showed, um, you know, it was kind of tracking the phenology and showed that a, a lot of greenwood plants are flowering sooner as well. And they're, you know, they're living their lives differently up there that can be advantageous or disadvantageous for different use, uses and purposes, you know, for the for wildlife utilization. But then also when you think about um, produ production, like pr producing crops, you know, there can be some advantages to the urban environment. You get your tomatoes to ripen sooner. Um, but the really interesting thing about Kyle's research, I saw him present on it recently, is that um, he's finding that um, nectar is more concentrated in some green root plants. You know, that's intuitive, right? Because the fact that the plants are not getting as much water might just mean that the nectar is not getting diluted, right? There might be something else going on physiologically with these plants. But what we don't know then is how does this concentrated nectar affect everything else in the ecological system of these plants. So I'm really excited for Kyle um, to continue that research and answer that question. Wow, that's that's great stuff. I, um, yeah. I know that Jennifer Busolo has reported that uh, a lot of the plants that she's been growing in Denver 
Uh, the food plants are lasting longer. They're producing more yes. vegetables because it's an extended growing season up on, yeah. up on the roof there. Um, Thank you so much for reminding me of Jennifer Buzolo's research, because the other thing we haven't really talked about is the relationship between plants and solar panels. Right. And so um, we know that having that the cooling that plants do around solar panels can make the panels more efficient. And mm-hmm. if solar panels are more efficient, then again, you're using less fossil fuels and you're mitigating climate change. So there's a lot of good stories out there about how plants are working for us. Yet another um, score for the plant community, you know, yes. relative to what our needs are. Yes. Um, how do people find out more about your uh, research, what you're up to uh, at Portland State there, Alyssa? So um, my my lab is called the Home Ecology Research Lab, the HER Lab, or the HERE Lab, depending on how you want to spin it. And um, I have a website, homeecologyresearch.com. So that's where you can get um, most information about me, I would say. And and as you know, I teach at Portland State. So homeecologyresearch.com. Mm-hmm. And that's a good place to uh, for people to go for more information. And uh, one final question: You are um, you we we there's been some discussion among the various research centers that are part of the orbit of Green Roofs for Healthy Cities about trying to do a plant database mm-hmm. with more detailed information about plants and how they function and what they need and so on and so forth on Green Roofs. Um, have you got any thoughts about that project you would like to share? Yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful for the support from Green Roofs for Healthy Cities um, for coordinating us as research across, researchers across the nation. It's really, um, it's a really amazing community of Green Roof researchers and um, being able to have Green Roofs for Healthy Cities create the forum where we can exchange our ideas has been very valuable. And so I'm really interested in um, utilizing or leveraging the community that we've built to go after some really important questions. And in my mind, the most important question is how can we use plants to address climate change? And what that's going to mean is comparing notes across our different climates about which plants work for different purposes and what we know about them. That's fantastic. Thank you very much for that. Um, and thank you very much for your time, uh, Dr. Stari. I know you're extremely busy and you have to get ready with, for uh, for lectures. <laughs> we appreciate uh, all that you're doing. And um, that uh, concludes our, uh, our Sustainable Futures podcast. Plants are a big part of our future. You've heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen, from mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Alyssa Stari. They're multifunctional. Thank you so much for your time. And we'll look forward to speaking with you in the future. Thank you very much.